Good evening, Noxology. My name is Leo, and I am a member here. I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, Christ Church has these Bibles in the back of the pews in front of you. Um, you can use them. Just please put them back because they don't belong to us. We also have uh, blue Bibles in the, in the back as our gift to you. Again, scripture reading tonight is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. All right. Good evening, everyone. Merry Christmas. Thank you. It's really cool to be here, like, the actual week of Christmas. And for those of you who don't know me, my name's Andrew. I'm a member here, as well as an elder candidate. And every so often, I'll get up here and preach when Steve needs a break or he feels the need to punish me in some way. It's really hard to distinguish those two sometimes, so I think he just needed a break this time. Um, But usually most Sundays you can find me in the back chasing around my daughter, trying to bribe her into not shrieking in every poignant moment during service. It works like 25% of the time. Um, But as we celebrate Christmas and the coming of our Savior to this earth, celebrating the first Advent also means looking forward to the second Advent, and that's what our Advent series has been about, anticipating the King and meditating on how we are to prepare and live lives in light of his second coming. And this text is just about that. So Paul is writing to a church in Thessalonica, a church that he only spent a few weeks with during its infancy, and now he's writing to answer some questions they had regarding the second coming of Christ. And I love this passage because it describes perfectly our natural human condition and contrasts it with the ways of God, but then offers a solution, like the story of redemption, that can only be found in the person and work of Jesus. So tonight we're going to look at this passage through three ways. I follow after Steve and in, in that, and I like my three ways. Um, so first, the danger of falling asleep. Second, how we wake up. And third, preparing for a king. So first, the danger of falling asleep. Second, how we wake up. And then third, preparing for our king. So first, the danger of falling asleep. Let's pick up in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So let's start with the language Paul uses here to contrast those who have fallen asleep and those who awake. So he describes those as in Christ as children of light and of the day. So in Semitic languages, to be a child of someone or something is to have your identity in it. It's stronger than a simple relation. 
It means that those in Christ have had their nature transformed from darkness to light, from sleeping to awake. But even those who profess Christ are at risk of falling asleep. As in this life, we are continually in a spiritual war with our old nature. And so remember, in the context of this passage, light and dark, sleep and awake, are in the context of the second coming. So what Paul is getting at here is he's contrasting those who are living as if there is no second advent, or living in complacency of it, to those who are transformed by the impending second coming of Christ. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, what does being asleep mean in light of the second coming? So to be succinct, sleep means of ignorance. It speaks of insensibility. It's complacency and laziness, inactivity. Paul uses a word for sleep in this text that literally means lying down or slumber. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century English preacher, preached on this passage several times, each time being this thunderous sermon, imploring his audience to awaken and follow Christ and live in light of the second coming. Listen to how he describes being asleep. When a man is asleep, he is insensible. The world goes on, and he knows naught about it. His neighbor's house is burned to ashes, but he is asleep and knows it not. Christian, behold your condition. You wished you could feel, but all you felt was pain because you could not feel. As for songs, you can sing them, but then your heart does not go with them. You go to the house of God, but when the multitude that keep holy day and the full tide of songs send their music up to heaven, you hear it, but your heart does not leap at the sound. Sleep is a state of inaction. He is positively dead to activity. Awake from thy slumber, because thy Lord is coming. That is the grand reason used in this text. So I think, whether we want to admit it or not, it describes all of us to a certain extent. As Paul points out, this is our default as humans. Our human nature is to be asleep at the wheel. And as Spurgeon emphasized, being asleep makes us immune to the world around us and to the God above us. We turn inwards and are numbed by our narcissism. And everything in our culture, right, from our phones to what we value at work, trains us to be addicts of ourselves and primes our brains to become desensitized to the people around us. And we sleepwalk through life hooked on the drugs of convenience and comfort. And at the end of the day, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of just don't want to be bothered by anyone or anything. But then we have these piercing moments of clarity where that veil is torn and you experience something that feels so meaningful and significant. And this happens a lot around the holidays. And it can be a, a dear moment with family at Christmas or the chill that goes up your spine as you truly understand a song like O Come Emmanuel for the first time. But very quickly that moment passes and you're left with empty hands saying, oh, we should really do this more often as you're saying goodbye to your family or you try to recreate that feeling you had during the song in January. And eventually, day by day goes by, and weeks turn into months, and it doesn't take very long until you're gritting your teeth through traffic or work each day, or melting into your couch at night for hours to watch TV, because you're tired, and you just don't really want to think. I sounded a little harsh, no. <laughs> I hope it did, um, but you know there's truth to it. I know there's truth to it because we live it. We each know what it's like to be cognitively aware that, hey, I'm asleep at the wheel. Life is passing me by, and I'm just numb, numb to my coworkers, my family, my neighbors. 
But at the same time, when we're numb and knowing that we're numb, we do that all the while yearning for significance and meaning. But paradoxically, we never live like it. We never pursue the things that we know in our heads lead to it. And so some questions for us to ponder this week. How do you structure your routine around yourself? Are there certain time periods of the day or week that are untouchable to others? Do you create or buffer time that you know you won't be bothered by something or someone? And then how does the second coming of Christ shape your actions on a weekday evening? And lastly, do you feel like your life has purpose or significance? So in summary, Paul is pointing to the fact that we fall asleep when we do not live in light of the second advent. And this goes against the transformation that God has done in our hearts. And so why is that a problem? To be succinct, you can't prepare for something if you're asleep. Which brings us to the second point, how we awake. Let's go back to verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So the problem with the Thessalonians was they spent so much time arguing about the return of Christ that they failed to be active in the present. Our problem is usually the opposite. It's not that we focus too much on Christ's second return, but far too little. And so one of the foremost reasons why we fall asleep in the first place is that the second coming of Christ doesn't feel real or imminent to us. But this far-off, distant event that we use to give ourselves occasional comfort but doesn't sink into our bones as fact. So think, think about it this way. Our actions in the present are so often determined and dictated by a future outcome that we are preparing for. So as a silly illustration, I undergo the action of collecting the trash on Monday night because I'm preparing for the coming of the trash truck on Tuesday morning. I know it's a reality, and I know that there will be future consequences if I don't act in a certain way. So therefore, I undertake the action of collecting the trash. The disconnect here is that unlike collecting the trash for the trash truck, which in my mind is a surefire reality that will occur on Tuesday morning, we regard the second coming as a vague event we kind of just assume won't happen in our lifetime. And is that not true? Like, we may assert the truth of the second advent in a cognitive sense, but deep down we all put way more chips in the probably not going to happen in my lifetime bucket. And it's that subtle hedging of bets that impacts our actions and purpose dramatically in the present. And in our complacency and what I would even go as far to say arrogance, we act and live like we do know. Like, oh, well, the average age of death in the U.S. is 76, given medicine and technology will improve. I'm probably looking at like 80 to 90 years, so I've got time. With all due respect, you do not. There is one being who knows the time and place of the second coming and the end of your life, and it is not you. It is the almighty sovereign God. And that sentiment is in direct opposition to what this passage says. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Guys, we have no idea when the end is. And Paul is saying something that goes against our human nature, which is it's the very fact that we don't know when it is, that we should be awake and in preparation mode. 
And living in hope of, of Jesus' return will change your life. God doesn't call us to this hectic, helter-skelter life where we're trying to cram in as many good deeds as possible because his imminent return is just looming over us. We'll talk more about it in the final point, but instead he gives us in the daily rhythms of our lives a chance to glorify him, to love others, and to seek relationship with him. And so first, in order to awake, we must have proper perspective of the second coming as an actual event that could happen at any moment. And so the point then is to follow Jesus today. So the second way we awake is to hear the images used by Paul in this passage. Verse 8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. As Paul is using war language here to describe how we should prepare for the second advent, he implores us to put on a breastplate and helmet. He knows that sleeping soldiers are no match for a formidable, crafty enemy. Sleeping soldiers aren't of much use at all. And one of the greatest coups that the enemy is convincing us is that we don't live in that state of warfare, that it's just us and God and no adversary. And Paul connects that war language here, as well as the overall idea of being awake with being sober. Like being asleep, soldiers can't fight or prepare if they're not sober. And he calls on us to be sober since we're in the middle of a war every day. So what does that mean, being sober in this context? The sobriety that Paul refers to here is someone who has a clear-eyed view about the world around them. They aren't surprised by sin or tragedy, and conversely, they're able to rejoice unburdened in the Lord. So a sober person doesn't get too excited by the things of this world. And as one commentator put it, our moderation as to all earthly things should be known to all men. Staying sober means that we have the proper view of eternity. We should labor to imprint on our hearts a deep sense of the value of where we're going. As Christians, we're called to be awake, alert, and sober about the state of war that swirls around us, but that we are not swayed by the war because our gaze and our value is hyper-focused on the victor of the war and our future home. The last way we awake is by participating in gospel community together. Paul points this out in the last verse, verse 11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So we are to point each other, you and I, to the reality of the second advent as encouragement for those who cannot see far beyond the moment or are in the midst of suffering. And on the flip side, we can admonish those who put too much stock in this life. Spurgeon says, when Christians talk together, they won't sleep together. Hold Christian company and you will not be so likely to slumber. Christians who isolate themselves and stand alone are very liable to lie down and sleep on the settle or soft couch and go to sleep. Spurgeon notes that we are to pursue relationships with brothers and sisters in the church because he knows we're at our most vulnerable to sleep when we walk this life alone. We need people to keep us pointed towards the things Christ calls us to. So we've looked at <clears throat> the danger of falling asleep and then walked through how we awake, right? We act with urgency today, we become sober-minded, and we do it in community. So now that we're awake, what's the point? What, are, what should we be focusing on? 
And once again, the context of this passage is looking towards the second advent. It's about preparation. So let's prepare for our king. In order to prepare for something properly, you need to have the right perspective on the importance of the future event and the surety with which it will happen. So as Christians, in order to prepare for our king, we must have an eternal perspective that exchanges the instability for the, of this life for the rock-solid sovereignty of God. It does not mean that we will f- not face uncertainty, but rather when it does come, we are protected from the roller coaster that yanks us to the extremes. Because we know the outcome. We know that Christ has overcome death and that we will spend eternity in heaven. We know he's with us today and we know that in the end, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It really is. And that's what gives us that perspective and sobriety. We know the outcome. It's one of eternal bliss, of glory, of joy, of commune with the God that created you. What an incredible luxury and gift of God to reveal that to us. We should be encouraged beyond belief by that. So is there a biblical model for preparation that we can follow in this life? The answer is yes, and it's Jesus, our Savior. So like us, Jesus too lived his life knowing the outcome. And while ultimately we know it was one of victory, his initial outcome that he lived under was one of pain and torture and execution. Jesus knew this horrifying outcome was coming the whole duration of his ministry here on earth, and yet he prepared perfectly for it. And in that preparation, we see two themes. He devoted precious time to his father, and he poured himself into others with the goal of them knowing the father. As Christ is our model and our savior and who we seek to follow in everything that we do, we have to model ourselves after him in this sense. So first, in his life, we see over and over again Jesus retreating from the crowd, away from the hustle and bustle, to spend time with the Father. If you think about that for a second, you and I would regard that as insane. He knew he had a very fixed amount of time to do ministry, and you would think that it would motivate him to cram as many miracles and as much evangelizing as possible. But that's not what he did. He spent significant amounts of time in private fellowship with the Father. And I think a major reason for that was to model what rest looks like. In that whirlwind of three years and care for people, he was modeling for us what it looks like to have an outlet. And it's in commune with the Father. And so we prepare for the second coming by prioritizing our private relationship with Christ and finding rest in him. We walk around thinking that a night on the couch is going to give us rest. We think that not going to community group because I've had a busy day will give us rest. That's not what we see in scripture and not what is modeled by Christ. The only possibility for rest in this life is exhibited through his intimacy with the Father. Spending and devoting actual minutes and hours to that relationship The only thing that can give us rest in this world is not of this world. The other primary mode of preparation for the outcome is Christ devoting himself to others. So unlike us who also know the outcome, Christ knew when the outcome was happening. 
so he knew when his time was and exactly how long he'd have on earth. Think about that for a second. Think of how fast three years must have felt to him. Like, we joke about, like, oh, it's, you know, this year is going so fast, where did it go? Imagine living, knowing, okay, in, in six months, I'm going to be tortured and executed in a horrifying fashion. Or, okay, in one month, I'm going to die. And then with that hanging over your head, continuing to pour into the disciples and answering the same questions for the millionth time, or only to have them jockey like juveniles for a higher seat in heaven, there's no way you and I could do that. We would snap. There's no way we could have carried that burden. But what do we see Christ do? He dealt with them patiently each time, pouring himself into them. He built them up with words of encouragement. He showed them the Father and spent daily life with them. He didn't withdraw, but instead leaned in all the while that hanging over his head. And so Christ does not call us to dismiss the emotions of daily life. His future return is not an excuse to disengage from messiness, pain, or even emotional complexity, but nor is it an excuse to wallow and be overtaken by them. Our path is modeled by our Savior. Remember what we talked about earlier, right? We all yearn for this life of significance and meaning, but never live like it. Well, God gives that to us in the person of Christ. Everyone in this room is preparing for a king in some way. How does it stack up to Christ's preparation? Does it look like the way he prepared? Or are we asleep and not sober? There's good news no matter how you answered. We have a Savior that modeled preparation for us. But more than that, he secured that path for you through his death and resurrection. It's not up to us to earn our place in eternity. It's been done. His life of preparation also wasn't just that of some iron-willed man. It was a life lived with you and I in mind. A life lived in your place so that his life could be credited to you and your future wouldn't be wrath or oblivion, but joy and glory. So at the end of the day, the way we prepare for the second advent is to see Christ and fall on our knees. Everything else will flow out of that. It's to see Christmas, the first advent, as the moment human history changed, and the moment that the God that created you said, I love you so much, I'll send my son to you. And that sending occurred on one night in Bethlehem when a baby born of a virgin awakened a world that was asleep. So let us be a church who are awake, clear-eyed, and preparing for our King, resting in his work that allows us to be close to our Father and to pour into others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for sending your son into our messy and broken world. Thank you for uh, reconciling us through the work he's done on the cross. I ask God that you would just help us to be a people in a congregation that are preparing for you, that look forward to your second coming, and that modeling, uh, and that we model our lives based on what you did. 
Thank you for who you are and for your goodness yesterday, today, and forever.